welcome back to Psychic Crime, and I'm your host, Nicole Mann. Like always, I want to thank you guys for listening. Um, I never ever would have thought that we'd be this song. I really say this every time um, that I do a podcast, but I really just thought it would be um, members of my family listening. Uh, so if you would like to show your support, give us, rate us on any of the platforms that you listen to us on. It really helps us get into those recommended lists. It helps us grow and get more listeners. Uh, please uh, uh, comment, you know, reach out. Um, I love to interact with you guys on social media. Uh, give us suggestions. I'd love to hear from you. Um, also, you can uh, stop by our Patreon page. We've recently updated everything. Um, you can stop by Venmo um, if you want to drop just a couple dollars and help support us. It's much appreciated. Now, uh, this week, we're going to look into the Stewart murder, which happened in Boston. Now, the shock of this killing led to an immediate and furious reaction in and around Boston. Mayor Flynn vowed to find the shooter and ordered Boston Police Commissioner Francis Roche to send every available officer into Mission Hill. I demand that Boston Police Department continue to be extremely aggressive in cracking down on people who are using guns to kill innocent people. It's intolerable, he stated. We will use every lawful tool to support our police officers in cracking down on gun-wielding criminals. Now, two days after the murder, investigators were building a profile of the man they thought was responsible. Investigators say they are convinced that the gunman either lives in or routinely commits crime around the Mission Hill housing project. Some police sources believe the assailant probably has committed several similar robberies by jumping into stopped cars at intersections. Lawmakers wasted no time demanding Massachusetts reinstate the death penalty. While the police cracked down in neighborhoods and politicians vowed to bring vengeance back to the justice system, the veneration of Charles Stewart continued. First responders who worked to save his life praised his concern for his wife's well-being. Now, a Boston Globe editorial hailed him as he gallantly called for help the night of the shooting. Not everyone was comfortable with the overwhelming sense of vengeance that swept the community. While a candlelight vigil in Carol's honor, his wife, took place in Mission Hill, community leaders quietly worried that white couples faced with crime were valued more by city leaders than members of the city's black community who had been victimized for years. You can't help but wonder if what you're watching is a class situation, that it's all right for poor people to put up with an enormous amount of shootings and killings, but presumably if you're white, upper income, and suburban, maybe that changes things. And that's really sad, stated City Councilor David Scondaris. More than 100 additional officers were assigned to scour Mission Hill, Roxbury, and Manapan searching for anyone who fit the vague description Stewart gave of his attacker. He was black, he had a raspy voice, and he was wearing a black sweatsuit with red stripes. He tried to rob the couple, but then said, you're 5-0 to Stewart, and started firing, apparently convinced that Charles was a cop. The police kept telling the kids that they'd have to come with them and take a ride, said Leslie Harris, a public defender familiar with the case. The way they intimidated these, intimidated these kids into making statements. Some heads should roll. But why were the tensions in the area so high? 
1988, just two years prior, the Boston branch of the NAACP imposed a class action lawsuit against the Boston Housing Authority for maintaining racially segregated public housing through the use of site-specific waiting lists. People of color were discouraged from applying for housing in the predominantly white neighborhoods of South Boston, Charlestown, and East Boston. As a result of the lawsuit, the Boston Housing Authority was forced to integrate all of its white housing developments and to compensate these applicants who had been denied or discouraged by their practices. The BHA was also required to establish a half million dollar community benefit fund to assist groups promoting fair housing efforts in Boston. Now, as someone who deals with housing, I've dealt with Boston Housing Authority, and it is extraordinarily difficult right now to get into housing anywhere in Boston. There's a 10 plus year waiting list for Section 8 vouchers and for housing. So as difficult as things are right now, I can't imagine what it was back then when they had to change the lists so that people, when people could pick and choose where they lived, now they that they had to change it and things are randomly assigned, which is the way it should be. You just go where uh, things open up when your number comes up. Um, but back then you used to be able to just pick and choose which building you wanted to live in when your number came up. Despite the court's decision, discrimination within the Boston public housing system continued to exist. Nadine Cohen, an attorney who specializes in fair housing and founding board member of the Fair Housing Center of Greater Boston to the National Commission of Fair Housing reported, after people of color started moving into previously all-white developments, they began to be targeted for racial harassment and violence by white tenants. Many of these incidents were harrowing. Young African-American children having firecrackers put in their jackets while their hands were held behind their backs. Bricks and bottles being thrown through windows of African-American and Latino families. Doors of families of colors locked from the outside so people couldn't escape. Feces thrown on doors, racial graffiti and vandalism, endemic and consistent verbal and physical harassment of minority tenants. The BHA failed to take appropriate actions to protect tenants of color or to evict the perpetrators. The Lawyers Committee brought 13 Jane Doe complaints against HUD, alleging that the minority tenants' fair housing rights were being violated and they were made to live in a racially hostile environment. HUD issued its first ever systemic finding of discrimination against the Boston Housing Authority, and the case resulted in the Boston Housing Authority adopting a strong civil rights protection plan to ensure that tenants of color can live in public housing free from discrimination and racial harassment and violence. Things were so bad that multiple papers were published by both the law and psychology students at Harvard during this time period. Leading the charge against desegregation was a state representative was State Representative William Bulger. Yeah, that William Bulger, Whitey Bulger's brother. He was the State Senate President at the time and a South Boston resident who had been an opponent of forced busing in the 70s. Yes, it took till 1979 for them to desegregate the schools in Boston. And he made a quote from a speech he made all the way back then in 79 stating that the hypocritical bleedings and the barbed criticism of our suburban neighbors who ostentatiously seek worthy social goals, not at the expense of their natural rights, but of ours, which <laughs> I find crazy. 
He also stated that most of us have been here before, referring to the desegregation of schools in 79. It is more of the same. You protest is a protest against bureaucratic tyranny. It is tyranny which is directed at just a few. It is a deprivation of the rights directed at the people of modest means. I find that absolutely insane that he was trying to say that desegregation was bureaucratic tyranny and the political division was drawn down racial lines. Black lawmakers were obviously for the desegregation and white lawmakers were against. This created a racial powder keg that by all accounts, the city expected would explode during the Stewart case. The Stewart, in 89, Stewart served as the general manager for Edward F. Caucus and Sons, a furrier on Newberry Street. For those of you who aren't aware kind of how Boston is laid out, Newberry Street is uh, kind of like the Saks Fifth Avenue of Boston. Stewart's wife, Carol, uh, was a tax attorney and she was pregnant with their first child. On October 23rd, the couple were driving through the Roxbury neighborhood after attending a childbirth class at Brigham and Women's Hospital. According to Stewart's subsequent statement, a black gunman with a raspy voice forced his way into their car at a stoplight ordered them to drive to nearby Mission Hill, robbed them, and then shot Charles in the stomach and Carol in the head. Stewart then drove away and called 911 on his car phone. On the night of the crime, the CBS reality series Rescue 911 was riding with Boston Emergency Medical Services. The crew took dramatic footage of the couple being extricated from the car. Carol can be seen in profile with her pregnancy prominent being willed to an ambulance. Other footage included Charles straining to speak with ambulance workers and graphic scenes of his rushed entry to the hospital's emergency room. Carol died just hours after the shooting at about 3 a.m. on October 24th. Her funeral took place four days later at St. James Church in her native Medford. Shortly after her death, doctors delivered her baby by cesarean section, two months premature baptized in intensive care unit, the child was given the name Christopher, according to Charles and Carol's prior wishes. Christopher had suffered trauma and oxygen deprivation during the shooting and died 17 days later. A private funeral service was held for Christopher on November 20th, 1989. Both Carol and Christopher were buried under Carol's maiden name. As the dragnet moved through the neighborhoods, police st started to zero in on suspects. The first named suspect was Alan Swanson, a homeless black man who owned a black sweatsuit. I own a black sweatsuit too. <laughs> I find that stupid. Swanson was held for three weeks until police focused in on a new suspect, William Willie Bennett. Bennett was roughly the right age and height, had a raspy voice and a history of violent crimes, including two shootings. On December 28th, Stewart reportedly had a strong physical reaction when shown Bennett in a police lineup. By now, the story had got national and the outrage was visceral. Matthew Stewart met with Boston prosecutors and, surprisingly, told them that his brother Charles was actually the person responsible for murdering his wife Carol. Matthew told police he knew Charles was up to something but didn't know that he was going to kill his wife. The two brothers had met the night of the shooting and Matthew had taken 
from his brother a Gucci bag containing a gun and jewelry. Matthew drove to Revere, where he and a friend pitched it over the side of the dizzy bridge. Matthew said he finally came forward when he realized Charles had blamed Bennett for the crime and that another man would be charged for the murder. In the days that followed, news surfaced that Charles had received life insurance payments to the tune of $82,000. Charles took some of that money and bought a new car, which he promptly abandoned on the Tobin Bridge in early January. Accounts differed on whether or not there was more life insurance and when the policies were taken out. News of Charles Stewart's activities in the weeks before and after the murder came spilling out of the shadows. Shortly after his wife's death, he was in Peabody buying jewelry for his secret girlfriend. A recorded call to the Revere Fire Department proved at least two other siblings were in on the details before they came public. The national media, which had so quickly seized on Stewart's lies as proof of a national crime wave run amok, now returned to the story with a vengeance. Writers across the country jockeyed to decree the lie and what it had done to Boston and how the press and officials were so easily swayed by Charles Stewart's lies. A vicious round of finger pointing began here today as prosecutors, the police, and news media began tracing the trail of faulty assumptions, disregarded suspicions, blunders, and perhaps even lies that put the wrong man at the center of one of the most highly publicized and emotion charged murder cases in the city's history, wrote the New York Times on January 6th of 1990. Was Stewart's suspected plot to kill his wife so extraordinarily cunning that an entire city cannot be faulted for having been duped? Or did Boston also fall victim to its prejudices and stereotypes when it ignored all the inconsistencies in Stewart's story and launched into a manhunt that tore apart a racially mixed neighborhood? Asked the, New York, asked the Los Angeles Times on January 10th of 1990. This crime that riveted the nation and nearly tore apart our town the awful ruse has come unraveled. Scarcely a soul in Boston does not feel victimized. Blacks are outraged that Charles Stewart's cynical cover story prompted a police hunt of almost unprecedented, un, unprecedented intensity and intrusiveness. Whites are pained to find themselves manipulated into apparent racism. And the integrated urban neighborhood where the murder took place feels stigmatized and violated. Its name sullied behind, beyond simple repair then there are investigators and journalists so thoroughly taken in, now looking ridiculous, and the politicians who rushed to make the wounded husband a hero of their favorite causes, now they just look craven. Knight Rider newspapers published that on January 21st of 1990. Those who led the dragnet through Boston's black neighborhoods and who pointed fingers at anyone in a black sweatsuit started looking for cover. Mayor Flynn apologized to the Bennett family telling Mrs. Bennett that what had taken place has been very unfortunate. The Bennett family later said he stayed only for a couple of minutes and wouldn't even sit down when he was offered a seat. When pressed about his role, Mayor Flynn said, I think everybody owes an apology to the Mission Hill neighborhood and to the black community, and they all owe an apology to the people of the city. We should all stand in line and wait for that apology. Suffolk County District Attorney Newman Flanagan continued to play both sides of the fence, insisting he never really said Willie Bennett was a suspect, but that there are witnesses who claimed Bennett committed the crime. Yes, witnesses who actually committed the crime. <laughs> just own your shit. Like, just own it. 
just admit you were wrong okay you didn't do your due diligence you accepted what the white dude said and just stopped investigating just own it for the city's black leaders the backpedaling was too much to bear they demanded not just apologies but action to address the blind charge into their neighborhoods police had stormed into boston's inner city searching for a man who didn't exist and turned the neighborhoods upside down in the process Roxbury community activist Siddiqui Kaman said, told the Boston Globe, race was the primary issue in this situation, as the mayor and Boston police with racist attitudes reacted emotionally to the report that a white female had been murdered by an African male. The, a Boston Globe columnist demanded apologies for Willie Bennett, Alan Swanson, young African-American males, Mission Hill, and Roxbury. Now that race is out the window, now there's only the racial embarrassment, the likes of which has not been seen since 1976, when African-American Theodore Landsmark was speared with an American flag by white Americans at Boston City Hall. Suddenly, a lot of African-Americans are owed an apology. Adelina Stallings, a tenant advocate, spoke about the message sent to residents of neighborhoods targeted during the police hunt. The message was that people in the projects aren't human. We're all just animals. Charles Stewart found out that Matthew was going to turn him in and immediately fled. The next morning, Charles drove to the Tobin Bridge over the Mystic River and jumped to his death. He fell an estimated 145 feet before hitting the water. He did leave behind a note, though it never included an admission of guilt or an apology. Prosecutors, however, had been hours away from arresting him. In 1991, Matthew Stewart, who helped his brother by taking a bag, no questions asked, and dumping it in a river, was found guilty of obstruction of justice and insurance fraud. John McMahon, the friend who helped Matthew dispose of the evidence, was also convicted on obstruction charges. In September of 2011, Matthew Stewart died of a drug overdose in a Cambridge homeless shelter. So, <laughs> I picked this one on purpose because... Uh, I wanted to show that racial tensions in Boston have been an issue for a while, but it's just ridiculous to me that the best people could muster up was, well, we had an eyewitness. <laughs> it never occurred to them the eyewitness was the person who committed the crime. And what's the worst is that the mayor couldn't even sit down in the house of the people he had wrongly accused and and that he actually called for the return of the death penalty for, that he was prepared to murder their son um, without even knowing if he was guilty or not. So, yeah, like when it was, and, and that's the other crazy thing, that as soon as they found out it was a white guy, all the cries for the return of the death penalty went out the window. So that shows the drastic difference of exactly what they were talking about and how this was in 100% about race. Because as soon as it was no longer a black person, no one was screaming about the return of the death penalty and how this person had to be put to death. Um, this was very much a racially driven and motivated case. And it very much almost read, led to a race riot in Boston um, because of the way that this case was handled. And directly after this case, due to all the racial tensions, um, due to the discovery of what happened with Whitey Bulger and how there was corruption within the police department, what they felt was racism, whether it was unconscious bias or ingrained bias, 
um, they got a new police chief who completely retooled the Boston Police Department. So this was um, directly led to that result. Um, so next time uh, we are going to be talking about uh, the, something we addressed in the very, very first episode of this podcast, which is Family Annihilators, but we're going to talk about female family annihilators. In the 90s, there was a rash of them, and um, there is a uh, divide within the psychiatric community as to whether they really even were family annihilators or whether the mental health issues they had going on disqualifies them from being considered family annihilators. So in the meantime, I hope you sleep better knowing the how and why people do such awful things.